Reason is worth fighting for. Don't expect that the road will be easy and the road ahead, the path won't be sinewy and it won't be dark and it won't be cold. We need to recenter our commitment to what's true and how to figure out what's true and how to talk to each other across a divide. And when we get slapped around or when we stumble, we need to pick ourselves up and keep going because that's the only way forward. There's nothing else at the end of history. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Peter Bogosian. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for welcoming me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on. I've wanted you on for a long time. I feel like there's a lot of stuff we will agree on. There's a lot of issues that you and I share in common, I think. Um, And I want to dig down into a lot of those things with you. The kind of things you're known for talking about, the state of the academy, the infiltration of wokeness, the problem of wokeness, the importance of free, civil, open discussions in terms of not only stating one's own views, but possibly trying to change other people's minds. All those kinds of things I want to ask you about in this podcast. But I guess I'll kick off with a broad question just to get things rolling, which is about the state of universities. This is something you've written about and commented on quite a lot. You've experienced uh, some of the sharp edge, I think, of modern day intolerance on campus. You were a professor of philosopher at Portland State for a number of years, and you resigned uh, citing just a general climate of um, authoritarianism or intolerance or, or not being particularly welcome to critical thinking. Uh, So you have some of that experience, you have some of that knowledge. I just wanted to ask you how you think things are going now. Do you see any reasons for optimism in the academy? Is there pushback against these problems of uh, shutting down debate, or is it still going in the wrong direction for the time being? That's a great question. Chris Rufo is doing some fantastic work, and we can unpack that. He's fighting the DEI bureaucracy. He's fighting the snakes in the various administrations, and he's working with Governor DeSantis of Florida to do that. The general state of the academy, I would say, is utterly abysmal. I don't know if you saw the video from Stanford Law that went viral about the diversity. And so listen, the bottom line is, I could talk about this stuff all day. You've done an extraordinary job on your show of bringing on guests and talking about it. The only thing that needs to be talked about is what are we going to do about it? And it boils down to this. You either have DEI boards or you have free speech. You do not have both. They're fundamentally incompatible. So anyone who puts out a Chicago principles or statements or makes any claims about free speech and doesn't dismantle the DEI bureaucracy, they're just lying. It's not even that they're mistaken, they are lying. That's actually a good jumping off point for for some of these issues. So on the university thing, I think the thing it's worth people remembering is that this has been going on for a long time. It's a, I think it was about 10 years ago, I was um, prevented from speaking at Oxford University here in the UK uh, because I'm a man and the discussion was about abortion. And so there was a, a, a campaign against that. And I wrote a piece for The Spectator here, which was headlined The Stepford Students. And I was just describing um, how robotic I found the students and how difficult it was. This is one of the things I want to come on uh, to discuss with you, how difficult it was to get through to them. 
They would kind of look through you. They wouldn't understand what I was trying to say to them. And even in the one-on-one conversations I had with some of the students when I later went to Oxford, it was very difficult to make a connection. It was very difficult to, to get them onto a level of trying to understand the issues that we were talking about. Um, so it's been taking place for a long time. In the US, we tend to then import that stuff here to the UK. And we follow uh, in pretty quick succession with some of the regressive ideas coming from America. Uh, and you mentioned there DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I wanted to ask you why you think that is so central to the problems on campus. Because, of course, they're buzzwords. Everyone loves diversity. Everyone loves inclusion. Who doesn't want to be included? But, of course, you've written about the double-speak nature of some of these woke terms. Actually, for Spike and November 8th. Yeah, so could you just explain the, the problem with words like that and why those institutions, the institutionalization of DEI is so problematic for academic freedom. Sure. Before I do that, I want to comment on something you said that they didn't want you to speak about abortion because you're a man. The idea behind that is that you are limited in your access to truth because of your immutable characteristics. And so that's a baked in idea of the system, right? We hear a lot of this systemics, what's the problem with the system? And each individual can access truth based upon certain immutable characteristics. So truth isn't from the Socratic tradition of being something that's open to all that we can discover through a dialectic and then through the scientific process later on. In fact, quite, quite the contrary, you can think of it as uh, if someone is white, cis, hetero, male, etc., they only see the world in black and white. And every time you add an oppression variable, they see one color. So they have more access to truth. So why is there an incompatibility between DEI and free speech? I have maintained from day one that the reason that this ideology has metastasized is because people are hoodwinked by the meanings of words. They're hoodwinked by what diversity is. And I have a on my YouTube channel, I've just done 60 second explanations of what these words mean by the way in which their proponents traffic. So equity means the readjustment of shares based upon historical past discriminations. Ibram X. Kendi's, the only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. Inclusion, to be included means to be welcomed. You can't feel welcomed if somebody says something offensive, by definition, you won't be welcome. So inclusion means that you have to restrict speech. Diversity means intellectual homogeneity or ideological homogeneity. So people are hoodwinked by the meanings of these words. You, you cannot have both an inclusive environment, by the way DEI proponents use them, and a free speech environment. Because someone will be offended by free speech and thus you violate the inclusion principles. You get one or the other. I think the the way in which you describe how those words now mean almost their precise opposite is, is so important for a number of reasons. Firstly, because in terms of understanding the impact that the institutionalization of DEI has on academic freedom, but also as a, a way of uh, more broadly understanding the dishonest Orwellian temper behind what people refer to as woke politics or, or the new left or however else we want to, to describe it. A very good example, I think inclusion is my favourite um, example of a, of a doublespeak word. And it was really striking to me that when we had this recent controversy of, of Roald Dahl's 
books for kids being rewritten to take out offensive words like fat, for example, in relation to Augustus Gloop, or um, demeaning the witches by making them work in a supermarket and so on and so on. One of the um, sensitivity reading organisations behind that rewrite was called Inclusive Minds. And so you have a very clear situation where the word inclusion almost always means exclusion. It means excluding bad words, excluding bad people. The number of times I've seen people be no-platformed from campuses under the banner of inclusion and in creating an inclusive environment. That kind of brings me on to something I, I, I really do want to dig into it a bit more deeply, which is how to confront situations like this, how to have a conversation about these kinds of things. This is something you think about a lot, how to engage in discussion. How can one do that when words mean the complete opposite to different people? Doesn't it mean that we're essentially speaking different languages and therefore any point of intellectual connection becomes increasingly difficult? I don't believe those things are incommensurable. I, w I just want to go back to something else you said. You, you're dropping a lot of bombs. <laughs> so I want to go back to something you said. So I think that's right. When you really understand what the words mean, the natural response is to be perplexed, right? The natural response is to be confused. And I think that's how many people feel that they're confused. They just don't understand what happened to the system, what happened to the schools, what happens at their work. And given those priors, then going into a conversation in which people have intentionally changed the meanings of words, it's difficult. So when you talk about how to have a conversation, the first thing is you need to be aware of words are violence. Michael Schellenberger and I put out a, a piece, words are violence, silence is violence, everything is violence. You know, if you don't say anything to counter injustice, it's violence. If you do, you're centering on whiteness if you're white. If you try to ask someone about their experiences, potential mansplaining. I mean, there's a whole linguistic infrastructure and vocabulary for the quote-unquote sins that one could be guilty of when attempting to engage people. So I think the most important thing in any conversation is to listen, repeat back to someone so that you know what it is that they're talking about so that you understand and place the burden of clarity upon yourself. Do I have this right? Chapter six of my last book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, deals with how to have conversations with woke people. Somebody actually said to me when I was at my former university, if a white male told me that one plus one equals two, I wouldn't believe him. That's a rather extraordinary statement. And I think it's, it's worth lingering on that for a moment. The, the good thing about that is that once somebody says something to you, once somebody engages with you, that gives you something to hook onto. So when I taught in the prisons, the idea was never that somebody was going to say, fuck you to me, or somebody was going to, I don't know, punch me or, or what have you, which certainly never happened. But the idea was the problem that I was always concerned about was that someone would say nothing. Because if someone says nothing, then there's no conversation to have. So there's no, nothing to hook on to. So if somebody says something to you, it's a kind of engagement. You know, the whole famous when Socrates, they, they said to Socrates, we're going to, you shouldn't ask questions. You should never ask questions. It's terrible. And he said, why? <laughs> Basically, um, the moment somebody engages you, the moment someone says something to you, 
that's a gateway. That's an opportunity to have a conversation. And it's also an opportunity to have an epistemological intervention, to use words to intervene in someone's cognitions, to either help them to develop more reliable methods of reasoning or figure out if there's something you don't know, that they know something you don't know, and then you can believe it too. So you could also look at it as a way to calibrate your own confidence. But the best way to calibrate your confidence is through discourse, discussion, and dialogue. And woke people provide a tremendous opportunity for that. Unfortunately, there are many, many reasons that they won't engage you. But the, the thing that you should never worry about is if they do engage you and they give a non sequitur or they become upset with you or what have you, the very act of engagement is already setting down the right path to discourse and dialogue, right? The, the problem is that if they don't engage you at all. I want to ask you a couple more questions about that, because I think this is such a central part of the whole problem that we face in the Anglo-American world at the moment. The problem of intolerance, not wanting to have open discussions, the problem, the, the severe problem of censorship and self-censorship that takes place. Um, you've written about this. You mentioned your book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, which is a really good read. And essentially what you argue is that well, one of the fundamentals that you put forward is that when you approach someone for a conversation, you shouldn't see them as a, as your enemy or, or as a degenerate or as a bad person, uh, but you should treat them as a, as a partner in conversation, as a partner in an exchange of ideas where one person's ideas might develop, another person's ideas might develop and so on. Um, a great, great idea, a great, great goal. But I just wonder if there is something different about contemporary woke culture that makes those conversations actually impossible. And I don't want to sound defeatist. I'm generally not a defeatist or pessimistic person, but take the modern campus. Everything is designed to ward off free conversation. No, you're correct. You're, you're correct. I'll give it to you. So you've got the safe space, for example, where people will hide away from conversation and even when you talk to them, as, as you've described, uh, it will be assumed, well, Peter, you're a white man. That's why you're saying this. That's why I shouldn't listen to you. Um, or you're mansplaining or I feel threatened. So how do, you, how do you get around those problems? Why don't we role play it? You want to be the woke person? Well, th that's an example. So someone will say to you, you're white, you're of a certain age, you have a certain privileged experience, you have historical benefits, therefore I'm going to exclude you from my safe space and I, if I listen to you, it will hurt me. So in that situation, how do you get around how that? Oh, how, how, how oh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. How, how will it hurt you? It will call into question my sense of self, my sense of identity my uh, belief system, which is core to everything that I am, it will be wounding. What, what beliefs would it call into question? My beliefs in the problem of white privilege, my beliefs that my experience as a gender queer woman from a certain part of the country should carry more weight in this conversation than yours. Should other people want their beliefs called into question? Yeah. Yeah. People who hold beliefs because of their background, because of their privilege, because of their skin color. People like you. What would be the best way to call into question someone like my beliefs? 
from the perspective of me, the woke person, the best way to do that is to prevent you from expressing them in the first place. Okay, but I'm not, maybe I'm not understanding. How would that ca cause me to call into question my beliefs? I understand how that would prevent me from speaking in a public forum, but how would that provide the opportunity for me to be an ally? I think the perspective of some of these people who would be engaging with you, or, or probably not, is that they wouldn't even necessarily want you as an ally. They want you outside of the safe space. They want you excluded from that zone because your presence is threatening. Your ideas are certainly threatening. Your belief in freedom of speech is extremely threatening. And the argument they would make in relation to you, in relation to me, in relation to many people, is that the toxicity of your ideas, which you probably inherited as a consequence of your racial, cultural experience, is too overpowering to be given free expression or free reign, and therefore there has to be an element of control. And, and you know this because you've written about it extensively far more than I have. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's even different to the past. There's always been extremists and dogmatists and religious hotheads, and it's always been very difficult to have conversations with those kinds of people. I used to go to Speaker's Corner here in London a lot when I was young, and there's lots of those kinds of extreme views, and it's very hard to have a conversation, but you can have one. It's usually quite noisy and shouty, but the construction of anti-conversational uh, infrastructure doesn't that raise a particular problem about today, which makes it difficult to have those impossible conversations? So I'll give you what you're looking for, and which is the truth. The answer is yes. But I just want to go back to the pretend dialogue that we just had or the dialogue. So a few things, the principles there, one, not always lead with questions. Two, I used a version of what's called the outsider test for faith. John W. Loftus, look at it from an outsider point of view. So you you were far uh, more civilized. <laughs> you were very uh, civil in your conversation, <laughs> in your tone, et cetera. But the idea is to just make sure you keep the questions going and don't fill those little spaces or little pauses. So now back to the thing that you, you've asked me twice. Yes, there is something fundamentally different about this. We, we need to be careful not to be myopic that every generation thinks that the generation coming after it is particularly degenerate that's been going on since Aristotle. So, so we need to be mindful and ask ourselves some questions. First of all, I think the thing that's fundamentally different about this ideology is that it repudiates tools that we've used to solve traditional problems for millennia and tools that we know that we can rely upon and that we need for a healthy functioning civilized society that specifically with democratic principles and institutions. And so if you remove dialogue and discourse as a way to solve problems, because those are a form of privilege preserving epistemic pushback from the literature. In other words, it's a way for privilege to preserve itself. It's one of the tenets of critical race theory. It's baked into, as Helen Pluckrose, also from your island, calls it critical social justice. It's baked into the system. And so there is something particularly odious. There is something that's particularly nasty about an ideology that repudiates the tools upon which the entire civilizational infrastructure is built, including our, our institutions. And so if somebody wants to reduce you to your immutable characteristics or someone wants to just not even engage in discourse whatsoever, you are facing a unique problem. So that is certainly true. It does not, however, mean that it isn't insurmountable. 
And an impossible conversation is only impossible if someone is completely unwilling to engage you and remain silent. So, you know, you can always ask questions like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Notice how I always say private people will change their mind from a position of psychological safety. So you really want to do as much as you can to not make the relationship adversarial and position the interaction and the engagement is one of a true safe space and conversation, one in which you reveal your vulnerabilities. And the more you reveal those vulnerabilities, even if they capitalize on them, you don't reciprocate. So that's interesting. So if a, I think this is, I use a similar example in my book. If a a pilot was a white male, would you not fly in the plane? If a surgeon were a dentist, a cis white male, would you not go, when you walk into a room, I wouldn't use this one, but you know, when you flip into the, a light switch, do you inquire as to the race and gender of the person who constructed the light or Thomas Edison or the electricity or what have you? So the question is, do people, are, are they willing to act upon what they believe or is just verbal behavior? Getting back to the universities, they don't believe this. Like, make no mistake at all. If they believed any of this stuff, they would do away with legacy entitlements. They just, but they don't. So they don't, they don't believe it. Also, they could be the quit in equity and white uh, woke administrators could just resign and they haven't resigned and they could give their position to a person with significant oppression variables or trans status. So they, they haven't done that. So they don't they clearly do not believe that. So this is make no mistake about it. This is verbal behavior. But there's a difference between the foot soldiers and we know the nucleation points, of the universities, colleges of education, gender studies department, university administrators. So. Most people at some level will want to engage you and want to have that conversation. And once they're willing to engage, then all you need to do, and I know that sounds like a lot, all you need to do, but you just need a strategy. Ask questions, listen, understand, put the burden on yourself, ask disconfirmation questions. How could we test that? Um, under what conditions would you be willing to change your beliefs? The same stuff I do in, in most of my street epistemology videos. I think you make an important point earlier there about um, the generational issue. And I think you're absolutely right that it's important, or, or, or there is a tendency rather for generations to see the subsequent generation as particularly problematic and more degenerate than we were. And I think that is something definitely worth resisting. I mean, for a number of reasons. Firstly, because there are huge swathes of the younger generation who are not like this, who don't even go to university, have jobs, would probably share the kinds of uh, views that you and I have on certain issues. But also, it's important and because of the, the balance in the modern authoritarian university between this new intake of young people who do sometimes exhibit intolerant behaviours, but also the fact of the administration of the university, the the upper echelons of the university who are either entirely on board with some of this crap or they are cowardly about challenging it. So I did want to ask you about, you've had experience of teaching in uh, the modern university. You've, You've spoken about it and you've written about it. I did want to ask you where you think that balance lies in terms of what the problem is in relation to what we're talking about, the difficulty of having conversation the undesirability of conversation on the modern campus, does that lie with the caricatured, blue-haired, genderqueer, 19-year-old girl or boy? Or is it a combination of, of their arrival at university expecting to be flattered and the administration's willingness to flatter them? It, it's a complex question. And if I've understood your 
question correctly. Part of the problem, I'm going to step back from that. We don't really know who believes what because we've created a culture of fear. Mm. So we can't really say definitively how many people subscribe to the tenets of the ideology. I can tell you it's almost definitely worse in certain departments. It's almost definitely worse at certain cities and certain universities. And so it's very difficult to figure out who actually believes what because they're too afraid to say anything. So once you've created a climate of fear, what people will say to you, for example, is you'll get hints, like people will whisper things to you in the street, but they won't say, they won't say anything out loud at a faculty meeting. As long as colleges of education are predicated upon Paulo Freire's pedagogy of the oppressed, and the goal of education, particularly in the United States called K-12, we teach not to, for truth, but to help liberate people from oppression. As long as there are DEI boards, which I've talked about, diversity, equity, inclusion, when the mission of the university has changed, the actual mission statement of the university has changed, and the individuals responsible for discharging those mission statements, those people, I believe, are overwhelmingly in the central orbit of the ideology. And so they've managed to create cultures and to weaponize diversity, offices of diversity. So even threatening an inquiry is a problem. Or they have biased response teams that anybody over 235 universities have those now. Anybody can call the biased response team and report anybody for anything, even thought crimes. So we, we have a culture of fear in place. You've talked about this. Your guests have talked about this. I don't see the point in talking about it anymore. I'm sick of talking about it. I want to do something about it, right? So Rufo is doing something about it. You can agree or you can disagree. I initially started to disagree. It's, it's look, it's Popper's 1945 piece where he talked about the paradox of tolerance. We have a bunch of extraordinarily intolerant people who are censoring the speech of others. They've weaponized these offices and the moment you come after them, they start screaming about free speech. These people don't give a shit about free speech. In fact, they are the sworn enemies of free speech. So how do you combat ideologues whose livelihood depends upon this and who have created offices in search of tasks? I mean, Stanford's DEI bureaucracy is, is insane. If you look at the, I don't have the breakdowns in front of me, but the DEI folks uh, make far more than traditional faculty, even full professors, and they have a direct line to the president of the university. They bypass traditional academic structures. So my response to you, instead of endlessly droning on about this, is what do we do about it? And so you have the Rufo response is one of those. I do not have that response, although I I will say I respect Chris tremendously for what he's doing. What, what I don't think is a solution, and then I'll tell you my solution, I think any attempt to try to restore free speech, like you know Toby Young is doing on your island there and other folks have done, I think that is just delaying the inevitable. That is just prolonging the crisis of legitimacy in the institutions. And what we ought to be doing is to let them fall into further illegitimacy. In fact, if anything, we need to push them to become more illegitimate. Uh, we won't, fortunately, have to expend any energy, effort, or money on that because they're doing it to themselves rather spectacularly. And instead, we need to build new things. I think we need to let the institutions burn, and we need to build new things. And that's what I'm doing. There's a lot in that that I want to um, 
pick up on. And feel free to push back. Yeah, no, we can come back to the free speech thing because I actually think, I think I, I disagree with you what you've said there because I think defending freedom of speech in every instance that it is challenged or undermined is actually, in my view, the key way through which we will start to, I think, rebuild a, a, a sense of principle. Not just the principle of it, but the great thing about freedom of speech and the defense of freedom of speech is that it serves both principle, the principle that everyone should be free to speak, and also free to listen. As Frederick Douglass said, any attack on free speech is a double uh, insult because it attacks the speaker, but it also attacks the listener, the the person who we should trust to use their uh, reasoned faculties to decide for themselves whether what they're hearing is true or false. It lends itself uh, to principle, but it also is a practical measure because the more freedom of speech you have, the more possibility there is for people to exercise that most important freedom. Thomas Paine talks about the incredibly important freedom of the freedom to change one's mind. Whereas, of course, the, um, the practical negative consequences of the ideology of the safe space is that the more you hide yourself away from challenge and confrontation and criticism, the more dogmatic you become, the more your ideas become a catechism, the more you start to believe things, not because you've tested them, but because you simply think they are correct. So in terms of principle and practicalities, freedom, the defense of freedom of speech is always a good thing. And surely that would be a, a preferable approach, if, even if it might be a slower approach, that might be a preferable approach to challenging the tyranny that we currently live under, rather than hoping that tyranny will crash and burn at some point. I'm going to push back on you, if I may, please. <laughs> yeah, please. I think that's an incredibly Pollyanna view, and I think it's an idea. Andrew Doyle's new book, Our Mutual Buddy, The New Puritans, is fantastic, and he talks about this Someone and I'd love to hear his opinion on this, but I think that the assumption there is fundamentally flawed for a number of reasons. So we're not talking about a society-wide level. At a society-wide level, I would completely agree with you 100%. We're talking about the ideological capture of institutions run by ideologues who have jobs for life. We're talking about bodies of literature that have for decades now been idea laundered, and I've written about that pretty extensively at this point, basically charlatans, as Dawkins calls them, charlatans have discharged their moral impulses in journals and laundered them off as knowledge. You have structures and features of the institutions that cannot be overcome. Any attempt to defend a free principle or a free speech it simply will not work within the existing infrastructure. Now, it could be, and I, I realize I might sound like a dick when I say this, it could be that it hasn't come to your island in the force that it is. But you should see that at Goldsmiths. You should see that in other places, that to the ubiquity that it is in the United States or the perniciousness or the pervasiveness. Or it could be, lack of familiarity with the DEI bureaucracy and how the culture of academia has changed and changed very, very significantly. I just listened to my buddies, Constantine and 
Francis Foster's podcast, and they had Michael Malice on, and they said, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't been talking about since the current episode? He said, yeah, what's going on in the universities? And the and I'm glad, Brendan, that you use the word authoritarianism, because it's not leftism. It's authoritarianism. And let's make no mistake about it that the, the axis is not right, left, liberal, conservative. It's authoritarian and non-authoritarian. And when you understand that, you understand the cultural realignment. So I don't think that these institutions are worth saving. I don't think that they can be saved in any time that you try to prolong this instead of pushing them toward their illegitimacy. I think you're doing a fundamental disservice to the people who go through those institutions because they'll either have hope or they'll have trust in the institutions that they will do things that they simply are not doing anymore. These are not truth-seeking organizations. These are not places that help people develop epistemological rigor or knowledge of a tradition, you know, by and large, are of course, exceptions to that. So I think it's it's worse than a waste of time. I, I actually think we're at a bit of a turning point in, not you and I, but, but society is at a bit of a turning point in relation to this discussion about the problem at universities, the authoritarian culture, the anti-knowledge culture that has taken hold and, and certainly illiberal as well. Because you're right, or your instinct that to, to want to talk about what to do about it is a very interesting one, because that is now, I think, the turning point at which we have arrived. And so I have some problems with what people are proposing to do about it. So I want to just put some of those to you. So you mentioned Christopher Rufo. Um, listeners will be familiar with some of the work he's been doing in terms of taking down critical race theory and challenging the uh, institutionalization of it in the academy and in workplaces and so on. One of the proposals he's making is that uh, he precisely says conservatives, I, by the way, am not a conservative. I am not either. But he says conservatives don't have to sit by and watch this stuff. They can take action to outlaw activist departments on campus or ensure that they can't get away with what they're doing, bring in new rules and structures so certain departments can't be taken over by activist uh, academics. We have a kind of similar discussion in the UK where the Conservative government has been talking about new forms of legislation that would essentially outlaw the no platforming of speakers on campus or certainly create a situation in which a speaker who was no platformed could um, make a complaint, seek redress, and, and so on. Now, at face value, and the crisis is so bad that one feels almost inclined to welcome these developments because they do seem quite firm, but I think they potentially make the problem worse because you surely cannot fix what is fundamentally a problem of liberty, the liberty to speak, the liberty to think, the liberty to investigate, to analyze, to observe, all of those things that the university is supposed to do. You surely cannot defend all those liberties through structures that themselves could bend towards intolerance in certain situations. So the banning of certain departments or activist academia could lend itself to a new culture of intolerance. Let's be clear about the banning of certain departments. There's no question at all that we need to study, and I've said this since the Grievance Studies Affair when when we talked about it extensively, we need to study race, we need to study gender, we need to study sexual orientation, and we need to study those, no but, and, and we need to study those using the most rigorous methods available, the scientific method, and we need to do so openly and honestly and subject our ideas to the peer review process, not in a way that forwards 
approach the morally fashionable, but in a way that challenges our methodologies. What do we do when that is not done, but the bodies of literature forward conclusions that are in alignment with the dominant moral orthodoxy? When we know that public policies are formulated on the basis of this literature. Those, again, tenure, jobs for life, we know that those departments are not capable of reforming themselves. And we know that public policy is based upon these pronouncements, these quote-unquote knowledges. What is the alternative to banning those? Do we set up a parallel infrastructure where we have the best you know, actual legitimate methods that study issues of race, gender, sexual orientation, trans issues, or what have you. I mean, what, 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 is, what is the alternative given the consequences? If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I think banning people or departments or ideas, which is what the banning of a department would represent, the banning of a department, let's be clear, that would fundamentally be the banning of certain ideas. Now, you're right. These ideas are destructive. They shape public policy in a way that is incredibly problematic. It, it's not that they're destructive. It's just that they're not true. They're false. And, and we're basing public policies off of these ideas. So, look, should we have entire departments de dedicated to phrenology? Should we have entire departments dedicated to Nazi race science? I think we shouldn't ban departments that were uh, uh, devoted to something like phrenology. Okay, let's take that hypothetical. Firstly, that is a hypothetical. That that is just not going to happen. But but the question is, in terms of academic freedom, the freedom of the professor and the student and the academic more broadly to pursue ideas in whatever way they see fit and to have those discussions. I think in those situations, we always have to err on the side of freedom. Now, at the moment, what's happening on campuses are things that you and I really disapprove of. They're anti-empirical. They're false. It's a tissue of lies in some situations. It's a fantasy world that they have constructed around ideas of social constructionism and so on. And grievance studies, as you have written about with James Lindsay and, and Helen Pluckrose. Um, I, I don't disagree with any of that. My question to you in terms of the issue you raised of what we do about this problem. I put it to you that if we if we bring in new laws, if we censor, if we ban, we are creating a new infrastructure, which at the moment would lend itself to getting rid of things that you and I disapprove of, but in the future could be used in a completely different way. And, and the oldest story about freedom of speech is that 
anyone who thinks they can let censorship off the leash and it will only target things they dislike will always be in for a rude awakening. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what you're looking for. I'm going to give it to you. We can, which is exactly why I said we need to let these let this madness run its course, assuming it does have a course, and let the institutions crumble. We need to let them go down in flames. I'm going to give you what you're looking for. Rufo has called explicitly and is working to ban this madness from institutions. I have a, a nonprofit, National Progress Alliance. I am not calling for the banning of anything. I'm not advocating for the banning of anything. I'm not suing for the banning of anything. I'm going to let the traditional academic infrastructure do its own thing. And if people want to try to save it, I think it's grossly mistaken, but I'm certainly not going to stop you. I am going to build new things. And I am going to help build the University of Austin as a founding faculty member. I'm going to help uh, Stephen Blackwood from Ralston College. Peterson has the Peterson Academy. I am going to help build new things. And then we're going to give people a choice. Do you want to go to a place that lives in make-believe land? Do you want to study real things from real people that ideas that people have tried to falsify from the best empirical evidence? And that's how legitimacy is created. Legitimacy is created by doing good work by building a community of trust because people have tried to falsify your ideas for an awfully fucking long time. And what we're seeing right now is exactly the opposite. And so again, I'm going to give you what you want. If people want to run off and make believe land and say there are a thousand genders and men or women and we're going to ban you and we're going to create a linguistic infrastructure to punish anybody who's a Nazi who doesn't agree with us, Look, I'm not sobbing you. That, that, it's too large of a behemoth for me to deal with. Mm. I'm going to build new things, and I'm going to give people a choice of what kind of education they want for themselves. Yeah, now that is exactly the kind of response I can get behind. And I think um, intellectual experiments like the University of Austin, which you've mentioned there, uh, the Peterson Academy, I would like to see more of these kinds of things in the UK. I think that is the liberal response. I mean the word liberal in, in the real meaning, not the modern corrupted meaning. That is the proper liberal response to some of these problems. So we we recognize that the academy as it previously existed has been corrupted by all sorts of intolerant, unhinged ideologies. And our response to that then is to create new institutions which do the things that we think a university should do. I fully approve of that. But I do just want to come back to the question of freedom of speech. And I just want to press you on that a little bit more because you did sound a little bit dismissive of the idea that we should defend freedom of speech in every situation. And I think it's because you don't think that's sufficient to challenge the enormity of, of what's happened on the modern campus and in culture more broadly. But what I want to put to you is that it is surely the only basis on which that can be challenged, because unless we demonstrate, you, you talk a lot about giving people an example. So through your street epistemology, where you engage with people through your uh, discussion about how to have conversations, you want to model behavior that you then think people will be able to learn from and incorporate and so on. Surely the best form of modeling behavior people like you and I could think of is to be defending a freedom of speech in every single situation, which doesn't just mean let this person speak, but means explaining why letting that person speak is the most important value in a democratic society. Whatever they're saying, 
and explaining again and again, having the argument and the discussion and the demonstration of one's commitment to freedom of speech again and again, surely that is the only way we can use our rational faculties to rationally engage younger people in particular, to bring them around to the the key virtue of our times, which is uh, the liberty to speak. Okay, so let me ask you a question. So we've been doing this actively, many people in the space, Steven Pinker has been doing it, uh, bring up our mutual friend again, Andrew Doyle, wrote a book called Free Speech. Many, John Stuart Mill, you can go back in history, Michael Shermer, Pinker, the usual suspects plus historical grounding. How's that worked out for everybody in the last five years? Has it gotten better or worse? Oh, it's worked out terribly over the past five years because we're in a minority okay. at the moment. So, but over the past 500 years, the defense of freedom of speech has changed everything for the better. I couldn't possibly agree more. We are talking about a situation of ideological capture now. Mm. We're talking about a situation in which the students who are indoctrinated are now, they've now gotten out, they've gone into the media, they've gone into industry, they've administrators, the leaders. And again, a, a nucleation point is colleges of education. So they're restaffing K through 12 educational systems. I don't think that this problem can be fixed. I truly, at this point, we have not been able to fix it. Now, you you can keep trying to flog a dead horse. And again, I'm not stopping you. I'm not stopping any of the people who are doing that. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to amplify the voices of Charles Negi at uh, UCF. We just interviewed him and the woke mob came for him. I'm trying to elevate those voices to help get their stories out. I don't think that that's the solution to the problem. I think it is unbelievably Pollyanna to think that all of a sudden the ideologues who are utterly, unshakably convinced that everyone is an existential threat to them and there are Nazis running around everywhere. And Douglas Murray has also written about this in his book, um, uh, actually in both of his books. I don't think that that is going to accomplish what you think. I think the only way to deal with this problem at this point is to build new things. So I agree with you on the building new things, but I think we're on the same page there. And I want to ask you about those new things in a moment, but let's just stick with this for a minute, because there's a couple of things I want to say on this. Firstly, it does seem to run slightly counter to the argument you've been making for quite a long time about the importance of having impossible conversations. And now you sound a bit more defeatist. You're saying what I initially asked you um, half an hour ago, which is how can we have these conversations in an era as intolerant as ours? So you're sounding slightly defeatist there. But also, I just put it to you that historically, people have often felt absolutely incapable of changing the system or expressing themselves freely. But they still recognize that having that discussion and having that argument and making that case for freedom was the most important thing. So, you know, Martin Luther could easily have just sat around thinking, well, the Vatican is just not letting anyone speak and therefore we should all just be miserable about it. But he didn't. He wrote his 95 thesis. So you actually, that actually makes my argument. Yeah. So he created a new institution, but then you have John Milton, right? John Milton could have easily felt the way you did, which is that all the ideologies are against me. The Star Chamber is an extraordinarily powerful institution. You can't say or publish anything without their crazy, regressive crackdown. He could have felt that way, but instead he said, listen, we need freedom of press, we need freedom of speech. Or right through to George Orwell and the war propaganda of the Second World War. He could easily have felt defeated, but he, he challenged it and he said, freedom means the liberty to tell people what they don't want to hear. So in all of the cases historically, even when people felt under the weight of institutions, which I would argue were even more 
powerful and regressive than the campus culture that we currently face in some situations. They still made that case for freedom of speech, for their own right to criticize and, their, and other people's awakening as well. So why do you think it's not going to work today? Okay, maybe we're not as far off as you might think. I think that there are two issues that are being conflated here. One issue is freedom of speech, and the other issue is an academic one. And freedom of speech broadly in the society, as I mentioned before, and fighting for everybody's right to, to, to speak in a public square. And just parenthetically, you know, you mentioned Speaker's Corner before. Uh, the Speaker's Corner here is fantastic. I think that that's indicative of the health of a democracy. I don't think, to be perfectly blunt, I wish I could be proven wrong on this. I don't think that, that you could have a Speaker's Corner in Portland, Oregon. I think Antifa would destroy it. I think there'd be riots. I think there would. And in those situations, because it, I, I hope I'm wrong about that, Brennan. I, like, I legitimately hope I'm wrong about that. But I don't think it's possible. In those sorts of situations, anything outside of a governmental structure, an academic structure, yes, 100%, we fight tooth and nail for the rights of people to speak, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, for cognitive liberty more broadly. But I don't want to conflate that and fighting for people's, well, at least in, in the United States, First Amendment rights. I don't want to conflate that with the attempt to cover what goes on in the universities. That's a very, very different thing. You're still talking about elements of free speech, but for example, the federal government, again, I'm just speaking from the United States context, the federal government gives money to, to virtually every school in the country. And when Betsy DeVos under Trump, and I think Trump is a lunatic to be clear, uh, she came after various institutions because they claim to be racist, right? There's this preoccupation that everybody's racist. And so back to the conflation, I don't want to conflate fighting for an individual's right to speak 100% yes, but it's very different from trying to save a sinking ship by making a course correction, a minor course correction, when the institution is clearly not living up to its principles. It's literally had a change in their mission statement. It's run by ideologues who have jobs for life. So if you want to use the word defeatist, which you did, that's fine. Uh, that's not the word I would use, but I'll, I'll give it to you. I don't, I don't think that those institutions are worth saving. And I think anybody putting their time in there, it's a waste of time and money. But again, if people, if that's how people want to spend their free time or their paid time, that's fine. So I think um, building new institutions is an incredibly positive dynamic and probably the best way to go in terms of long-term cultural change back to reason, back to freedom. I think that's the way to do it. Uh, but I just have one more question on this issue uh, for you. So you could well be right that these institutions, these universities, some of them are beyond saving, they, they're beyond repair, they will crash and burn and that won't be a great loss to humanity. I think you could well be right about that. But I do just want to press you one more time, because I think this is really important for people like you and me to think about. You said earlier on that this is not leftism, this is authoritarianism. And I really agree with you on that. And one of the disagreements I have with lots of the people who would be on our side, I think, is that I don't think a lot of what is happening is left-wing, certainly not in the traditional sense, certainly not in the sense of the enlightenment left of the past, which did believe in reason and did believe in freedom and did believe in equality. 
All of those are now undermined precisely by DEI, which undermines equality, reason and liberty. Um, So I don't think it is left wing. Uh, But what I'm worried about is that I think we could be entering into a new climate in which the justifiable anger over the corruption of the universities could give rise to a new invasion of people who are more conservative or more to the right, who want to use legislative measures or other measures to control the campus and to tame its craziness, which could give rise to the same problem, but from the other side. And so now that might be part of your argument, and I'm entirely up for this argument, that might be part of your argument, well, who cares, they're all going to crash and burn, it doesn't matter. But that's something we should stand up to as well, isn't it? Because I don't care where authoritarianism is coming from, whether it's the left or the right. I want to challenge that and defend the freedom to observe and investigate, analyze and speak. Okay, so I'm really, really happy you said that because that's the part of my argument that I didn't vocalize to. The second half of my argument is, as the president of the University of Austin has said, this the solution to left-wing ideological capture is not a right-wing institution. Yeah. And my deep concern with what's happening in the universities right now is the attempts to restore freedom of speech and and basically, to be blunt with you, sanity, the way that that is accomplished is not by putting right-wing ideologues, is not by extirpating diversity, equity, inclusion, and staffing them with right-wing maniacs, who will also, by the way, have some of their own version of political correctness, of their own version of blasphemy, or maybe pro-Christian, whatever it is. That's not the solution I see that happening more and more. I'm deeply concerned about that. And and that's the other reason that I think that the whole system is crashing and burning. Because I see the way that people are trying to fix that is through staffing it with, quote unquote, their side. And make no mistake about it, their side, I'll name names if you want. I mean, I can think of people on the right, like Matt Walsh, who are complete authoritarians on the right. And that's not the solution to the problem either. But it does lend to, and again, I'll give you your word, defeatism. Yeah, I'm defeated. I am defeated. Or I'm defeated about this idea that those institutions are salvageable. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, I really agree on um, the problem of right-wing authoritarianism, which I think I think it might bite us quite soon. I mean, it's always been around, but I think it's it's getting a new lease of life through its opposition to the terrible problem of wokeness. And I just think it's something it's important to be sensitive to and, and aware of. I just, I just want to talk about that for a second, please. So I was in Hungary for four months last year, and I got to know many, many people there on the right and the left. And make no mistake about it, the left despise Orban, here's what's really interesting. Here's something no one will tell you. So I had a a dinner, I was thinking with one of Orban's chief or or main political opponents. And at dinner, I had dinner with him and his boyfriend. And a woman was there who was, imagine this, a non-woke gender studies scholar. And I said, I don't think you could find that in the angle sphere. Like, I don't think that exists. But one of the things that emerged from that that was just fascinating to me is that many people on the left in Hungary, they despise 
wokeism because it gives Orban something to be right about. And I thought that was incredibly profound. And you're right, and I use that to say that I think you're right. Conservatives and Republicans are using wokeism, something they're clearly correct about, to forward and push their own narratives and their own agendas. And I think we need to be incredibly mindful of that. We also need to be mindful of the anti-woke space. Look, the, the, the solution to this stuff, we all know what it is. It's formulate your beliefs on the basis of evidence. Be willing to change your mind. It's epistemological adequacy. It's, it's rigor. It's engaging in conversations of people with whom you disagree. It's ideological diversity. I mean, this is no surprise. It's fungible, right? This is, you could just take the same, whatever the content is and just substitute it with something else. So I think, I think we have more points of agreement than we have points of disagreement. Yeah. And I very much agree with what you've just said there. And I think the right wing backlash against woke, you can already see it becoming something that is going to be a problem um, in terms of it's not only its hostility to certain forms of freedom of speech, even though you and I would agree that the speech being freely expressed is really bad and weird and and wrong, uh, but also in its hostility to other ideas like even the modern idea of women's liberation or reproductive rights or um, other ideas that I think are very positive and contribute enormously to living in a free, equal society. So I think it's really worth being sensitive to some of those problems that could be coming around the corner quite soon. But on, on that, I did want to ask you a couple of just slightly broader questions about the state of politics in America as it pertains to these problems. So As an outside observer, I find America fascinating because I see the democratic establishment as just being pretty lost and being way too beholden to these eccentric ideologies that you've been, you and I have been talking about and far less connected with working class people of all backgrounds. Um, We know that huge numbers of Latino voters, for example, have moved towards Ron DeSantis in Florida. Even Trump was able to boost his vote amongst Latinos and African-Americans. So the Democrats are losing out on working class people and are much more now the party of the upper middle class graduate who thinks that you can change sex. Um, And then you have a a, a populist pushback against some of that. Lots of voters are thinking, well, we're sick of this. We're going to use the brute instrument of Donald Trump to teach the establishment a lesson. So it's interesting to an outside observer, and similar dynamics are occurring in countries in Europe, including in Brexit, Britain. But I wonder, isn't there a space within all of that amongst ordinary people who don't want to be dominated by out-of-touch elites who believe crazy things? Isn't there a space there, not just for right-wing populists to come in and say, well, we'll take the fight for you to Washington, D.C., but also for voices like yours? which can say, um, I'm also not interested in these elites. I'm not also not interested in their ideas. We should make a connection, a populist one, in terms of uh, pushing politics in a new direction. Or do you want to keep those kind of arguments for, I don't know, the University of Austin, those kinds of spaces? No, 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 no. So you're right about the Democrats. They've bartered traditional economic concerns and class concerns. And you've said this before on your show, for things that have an identity level salience. So it's already a problem 
Biden, I think, in his second debate with Trump, didn't know the difference between equity and equality. We just recently saw a bill on Bill Maher. Bernie Sanders couldn't define equity, uh, which was fascinating given it's one of his commitments on his webpage. As I've said before, it's like a blitzkrieg without a war. It's something that utterly took over. Nobody ever heard the term equity outside of a financial context. Now it's everywhere. It's 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 just a constant barrage. You know, I get emails from my, my kid is in public school, constant barrage of emails from my kids' public schools, equity, equity, equity. I've asked the superintendent, I've asked people with equity is, nobody seems to know what equity is, which is rather odd. Um, so I, I, I do see, so for example, you have a candidate on the Republican side, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is really advocating some in, interesting stances. He's explicitly anti-woke. He's also obviously a Republican, and I say obviously because I don't know of any Democrats who are anti-woke. I don't think it's possible to get the backing of the party. You also have Andrew Yang. I supported Andrew Yang in the last election, both endorsed him, and uh, I actually happen to like him. I consider him, you know, a friend might be too strong, but I think he's trying to uh, make the forward party, which is his new party, to be a viable third party. I think that, that it's possible, but it's a long shot. You know, we have a very ingrained two-party system in this country. I think most people are sick of it. I, I don't know. And when I say sick of it, I think, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm 56, I've heard a national divorce, which is just utter, would have utterly shocked my parents if they were still alive. You know, the idea that the, the country would divide on the basis of politics. I mean, that's just unheard of. In fact, if anything, you should you shouldn't do what Cushing and Dunning say the big sort when we sort out according to ideological lines or maybe even racial lines. But you should do the best that you can to mix ideologically with people, if for no other reason, then you'll have better conversation to be more interesting. I think if DeSantis runs, I think that it's a very real chance. You know, I, I don't I'm not really an explicitly political person, but. He has come out swinging against wokeness. And again, the Democrats are beholden to the woke left, and they've given the Republicans something to be right about. So I also admit that I was wrong. I thought, like Rogan and others, there'd be a massive red wave. The red wave turned out to be a, a red trickle. And we, when we look at exit polls, we realize it's because of the Supreme Court's uh, turn on abortion and Roe v. Wade. I, I think that the future remains to be seen. I do think that we are at, and I was going to have a debate with Michael Schellenberger online about this, uh, but then he got called off to the Twitter files. I do think that we have reached peak wokeness, but I will say that I have been wrong repeatedly about that. Just when it gets to be completely insane, I will say there's no possible way it could be any more insane than this, and I've been wrong. So, But I do think that something feels more different about it now. I can't give you any objective metrics, but from being consumed by this space for so long. And, and what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing a political infrastructure whose operatives are attempting to capitalize on that. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't make prognostications, but I think that we can all agree that this is going to be an extremely interesting race. So, okay, Peter, my last question for you, it's, it's kind of ridiculous to have this as, as the last question, but uh, we are running out of time, which is your fault for being too interesting. Um, but I want to ask you about defending the Enlightenment, um, which I think is, is a very important thing to do. Uh, the Enlightenment values of, of reason, freedom, and tolerance. I think those are uh, values that uh, John Locke, Spinoza, 
everyone wrote about in ways that I think people should uh, remind themselves of regularly about what those values mean and why they're important. Um, aren't there a number of different challenges to Enlightenment thought at the moment? So there's the woke challenge, which is, in my view, just counter-Enlightenment uh, writ large. There's a right-wing challenge to the Enlightenment. I think the right has a tendency towards identity politics, which undermines the values of tolerance and undermines the values of universalism. Um, but also, there's a technocratic undermining of Enlightenment as well. Now, you are sometimes described as a new atheist, and I don't want to open this can of worms this late in the podcast, but one of the issues I had with new atheism, when it was really popular, that kind of secularism on steroids that we had in the 2000s in particular, uh, one of the problems I had with that is that I always thought, even though it it mimicked the Enlightenment or, or claimed to be inspired by the Enlightenment, it often didn't live up to certainly the value of tolerance. There was often intolerance expressed towards people of religious faith. Um, it was a bit bullying. It was a bit arrogant. Um, and also it was narrowly about uh, a technocratic or scientific reason and, not, and less about moral reason, which I think is something slightly different and equally important, possibly more important. So there are a number of different challenges to Enlightenment thought. What's your views on those challenges and, and, and how can we best defend those values in, in the 21st century? That's a, that's a fantastic question. So reason is worth fighting for. Don't expect that when you defend a principle, you won't get slapped around. Don't expect that the road will be easy and the road ahead, the path won't be sinewy and it won't be dark and it won't be cold. We know fundamentally that reason has more than an instrumental value. In other words, we know that it doesn't just lead to the fruits of science, refrigerators, cell phones, this conversation. We know that those values endure, that they are timeless. We can rationally derive them. We can think through them. It has nothing to do with being white or being a male or being hetero or cis. They're values all of humanity can not only participate in, but derive. We, we know that we can all enjoy the fruits of having a society in which people are more rational, more reasonable, and more kind. But the only way that we can defend those values is that we have to have an infrastructure that allows us to question and to challenge and to argue. And we have to have a politic, a body politic that allows us to write what we want, to say what we want, to assemble and the kind of folks that we want to assemble. We know that nobody wants the secret police to come and kick in their door at 2 a.m. And so... What we need to do now is to not only restore the ability of people to speak truth in this face of danger, to, to parahesia, the virtue, but what we, we need to do is we need to revitalize the value that people should. We need to recenter our commitment to what's true 
and how to figure out what's true and how to talk to each other across a divide. And when we get slapped around or when we stumble, we need to pick ourselves up and keep going because that's the only way forward. And and I don't mean to sound anything other than what it is. It's the only way out of the darkness. There's just no other way. There's no other rationally derivable system. There's nothing else that's no other principles that are univocal. There's nothing else at the end of history. That's what we got. Peter, thank you very much. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.